Hello, and welcome to another episode of Baker McKenzie's Beating the Competition podcast. My name is Brian Burke, and I'm a partner in the firm's Washington, D.C. office. I'm joined today by my partner and colleague, Mark Mandel, an M&A partner from our New York office. Thanks for joining me, and welcome, Mark. Thanks, Brian. Thrilled to be here. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the issue of managing the risk of disputes arising between parties to strategic M&A transactions during the period between signing and closing, in particular where protected antitrust reviews are anticipated or at least are possible. Anyone following the press on M&A deals of late is familiar with several disputes between parties to high-profile strategic deals that arose due to some post-signing development where one party no longer liked the deal and wanted out. COVID, obviously, has certainly caused some upheaval in this respect, but this is not an issue that came along with COVID. It was with us before and will be with us after, whenever after occurs. Before we get into any specifics, I want to get Mark's input on a broader point. Mark, now that MA activity is reportedly beginning to pick up, and as we continue to adjust to the new normal with COVID persisting, are you seeing a heightened sensitivity on the part of your clients to protect themselves from some potential post-signing issue derailing their deal? So buyers and sellers alike desire deal certainty as much as that can be achieved, and they negotiate the terms of their transaction agreement accordingly. That's always been the case. But COVID has created a new and strong incentive for many buyers that entered into transactions before COVID and now have buyer's remorse to want to get out of their deals. The world has changed in a way that was not anticipated when the deal was signed. So in order to terminate a transaction, a buyer has to show that one of the closing conditions has not been satisfied. Since COVID, there have been many high-profile lawsuits filed by buyers to terminate merger agreements or by sellers to force buyers to close a transaction. For example, claims have alleged COVID caused a material adverse change to the target's business or its results that was not excluded in the material adverse effect provision or breached by the target company of its interim covenant to operate in the ordinary course of business, for example, because it was forced to close its retail stores due to COVID. Several of these cases have settled and several are still in litigation. In given circumstances, buyers may or may not want to terminate a merger agreement, but where the merger agreement does not clearly exclude the effects of COVID, buyers may have leverage to renegotiate the purchase agreement and other terms by threatening to terminate and leave the target as damaged goods. Bottom line is that sellers entering into a merger agreement now are very concerned with plugging all the holes in the agreement that would provide the buyer with an out. In comparison, buyers are looking to build into the agreement as much flexibility as possible. That makes sense, Mark. And I imagine the relative bargaining position of the parties in the given circumstances influence where the operative provisions end up in any event. Moving to a specific case where the parties' respective post-signing interests in getting to closing diverged is the abandoned merger between Anthem and Cigna. The parties' litigation recently concluded with a 310-page opinion from the Delaware Chancery Court that found neither party was entitled to any damages despite a finding that Cigna had breached certain of its covenants in the agreement. For those not familiar, let me provide a brief reminder of the timeline for that case. 
The transaction agreement was initially announced in July of 2015. The antitrust division of the DOJ sought an injunction to block the deal in 2016. The U.S. District for the District of Columbia granted the injunction in February 2017. The deal was terminated later that year and litigation was, was initiated. Here we are near the end of 2020 with the recently released opinion from the Delaware Chancery Court more than five years after the deal was announced. In short, there was a lot of time between signing and closing for circumstances and the party's views to change regarding the deal. The details of the case are many, but the bottom line result is that the conduct of a third party, the antitrust division of the US DOJ, effectively absolved Cigna's breach. That's a very particular set of circumstances. Nevertheless, we want to consider what lessons as practitioners and parties pursuing strategic transactions might we learn from the dispute and more specifically from the judge's opinion. Now, there are a lot of topics that we could discuss, but we're going to focus on three. First, the transaction between Anthem and Cigna was announced as a merger of equals and certain issues arose after signing related to the leadership of an integration planning for the combined company. Are strategic transactions, Mark, that are characterized as mergers of equals more susceptible to post-signing disputes? So first we should take a look at the deal's terms. So the agreement provided that Anthem would pay Cigna stockholders $54 billion, representing a significant premium, payable 55% in cash and 45% in Anthem stock. On a pro forma basis, Anthem stockholders would own two-thirds and Cigna stockholders approximately one-third of the combined company. Further, the agreement provided that the combined company's board of directors would have nine Anthem designees and five Cigna designees. Anthem CEO would be the CEO of the combined company. Cigna CEO would be the president and chief operating officer. The two CEOs would be co-chair of the integration planning committee. So while the transaction was characterized as a merger of equals, the agreement's terms indicate that Anthem was the acquirer. And it seems that the divergence between the public characterization and the deal's terms led to some misaligned expectations. There may have been different perceptions of what the deal was by the parties. To the extent there was not a mutual understanding between the parties regarding all aspects of the transaction, and to the extent that the merger agreement left things to be determined, such as leadership or succession, it provided the foundation for a potential dispute. And when the transaction is subject to a protracted regulatory review, like, like you mentioned, um, there was plenty of opportunity for contentious issues to arise. So regarding the required regulatory review, the agreement included typical provisions governing how the parties are to navigate the antitrust clearance process. There were provisions addressing the party's efforts and cooperation obligations. The agreement obligated Anthem to make any concession, including divestitures required to obtain clearance, qualified by so long as the concession would not represent a material adverse effect for the combined entity. And Anthem had to pay a 1.8 billion reverse termination fee if either party terminated the agreement because of two, is two uh, issues. One, the closing did not occur due to an injunction or two, the outside date had passed. So getting back to your question, I'm not sure that the characterization of, of any deal as a merger of equals makes it more or less susceptible to issues like those presented in the Anthem Cigna dispute. But as I said, the characterization may have signaled that the parties were not completely on the same page with respect to the transaction. 
It's important in any deal to ensure that there's a meeting of the minds on all the issues prior to executing the transaction agreement. These would include issues relating to integration, planning, leadership, succession, regulatory communications, etc. Make sure all the principals are on board and relatively happy, in particular when you expect a prolonged period between signing and closing. That's, that's important advice. There seems to have been a bit of a disconnect between the parties in this deal from the beginning. The public characterization of the deal upon the announcement as a merger of equals appears to have been an early indication of that. In my practice, I frequently quote the phrase, an agreement to agree is no agreement at all. Again, an agreement to agree is no agreement at all. It's critical to hammer out all the details. Thanks, Mark. That's uh, straightforward advice, perhaps not so easy to implement in practice. The devil, as they say, is in the details. Moving on to uh, issue two. The Delaware Chancery Court found that Cigna breached its reasonable best efforts and regulatory cooperation covenants, as you referenced those in the earlier response. But again, Anthem was not awarded any damages. Now that can't be a satisfying outcome for any party who prevails in litigation. What provisions could or should parties consider adding to transaction agreements to avoid such an outcome? Perhaps a liquidated damage clause or a clause imposing an obligation to affirmatively support the transaction. Of course, you have to keep in mind that such provisions may affect the negotiation dynamics for the underlying agreement. So I expect it was very frustrating for Anthem that the judge found that Cigna breached its covenants, but there were no damages. The antitrust division sought and obtained an injunction preventing the deal from closing. And the court reasoned that Cigna's breach did not cause the failure of the no injunction closing condition. Just to quickly explain that reasoning, the court ruled that the applicable test under Delaware law is whether the breach contributed materially to the non-satisfaction of the closing condition. While the court found that Cigna's breaches of its best efforts obligations made the issuance of an injunction more likely, the court found that a preponderance of the evidence indicated that it was more likely than not that the merger would have been enjoined on antitrust grounds irrespective of Cigna's actions. Anthem and Cigna were the second and third largest US insurance companies and would have been the largest after closing. Prior to this case, one would have thought that a best efforts clause was a very onerous standard and there would have been consequences for a breach. However, using the causation ruling in this case, the conclusion is that Delaware law only allows for damages where the breach of the best efforts covenant contributed materially to the non-satisfaction of the closing condition. Now, under that standard, what provisions might a party include in a transaction agreement to ensure that they may recover damages should their counterparty breach. In a case where there is the possibility that no matter what the party does, i.e. cooperate or breach, an antitrust injunction is likely, the contracting parties can insert into the agreement liquidated damages payable if the deal fails to close and there's a breach of the best efforts covenant and then specifically point out that the non-breaching party is not required to prove causation. Clauses that explicitly prohibit one party from opposing the transaction before regulators or otherwise should always be included in the cooperation clause. In this case, the parties agreed to let Anthem take the lead role in communicating with the regulators and Cigna agreed to cooperate with Anthem. 
Given the pretty unique facts in the case, it is possible that inclusion of a liquidated damages provision could become market, at least in circumstances where antitrust approval is anticipated to be an issue. Each party could justify its inclusion to properly incentivize cooperation and not end up in this situation. Likewise, it seems that it may be sensible, if the circumstances justify it, to add a provision providing that any breach of the cooperation obligation by either party would nullify any obligation on the part of the other party to pay any termination fee or reverse termination fee. That could provide a significant incentive to cooperate. It'll be interesting to see if that does become market, as you say. Apart from that, Mark, uh, any other observations from the decision regarding the provisions that were included in the transaction agreement and the impact they had on the Chancery Court's decision? Well, well, one additional point to note, as as I already mentioned, Anthem's divestiture commitment was qualified by that MAE, material adverse effect limitation, meaning that Anthem did not have to agree to make any divestiture if it would amount to a material adverse effect for the combined entity. Anthem's obligation to pay the reverse break fee to signal, likewise, was not absolute. The Chancery Court's decision makes clear that these qualifications made it more difficult for Cigna to prevail on its allegation that Anthem breached its divestiture covenant and was obligated to pay the reverse break fee. The point being, agreeing to qualifications to a counterparty's covenants can represent a significant concession, potentially inhibiting enforcement, and parties should remain mindful of that during negotiations, as well as the post-signing period as potential disputes become visible. Yes, uh, you know, once an agreement is signed, there may be a tendency to put it to the side and you know, maybe forget the nuances or even the specifics of given provisions, particularly the farther you get from the signing date. The third angle to think about here is when there might be tension between management's contractual obligations and a merger agreement and their fiduciary obligation to shareholders. Again, the Chancery Court effectively determined that it was more likely than not that the DOJ was going to block the Anthem Cigna transaction regardless of what the parties did. It's at least possible, if not likely, that one or both parties reached the same conclusion at some point well before the transaction agreement was terminated. Putting aside the facts and circumstances involved in this particular case, what are management's obligations when they believe their fiduciary duties are inconsistent with or perhaps even in conflict with the agreed contractual obligations. I've certainly worked on deals where I perceived or been flat out told about a change in my clients or my client's counterparty's perspective on an executed deal, meaning they no longer want to proceed with the transaction at all or in the form or on the specific schedule reflected in the transaction agreement. In such circumstances, what are the issues that we as counsel need to be thinking through and advising our clients on, Mark? So, Brian, this is a very complex question. And, of course, the facts of the case, as well as the negotiated terms in the transaction agreement, will matter immensely. But as a general matter, anytime a merger agreement has been executed, the board of directors of each of the parties has made a determination that the transaction was in the best interests of their respective corporations and recommended that their respective shareholders approve the transaction. Once that is done, the task becomes how to close it in accordance with the terms of the merger agreement. The business judgment rule provides that the director's decisions are presumed to have been made 
and an informed basis in good faith and in the honest belief that the action taken was in the best interest of the corporation. However, under the Revlon standard, the board has a duty to secure the best value reasonably available once a sale or breakup of the corporation is imminent. So with that provided, there will always be the possibility of a breach of contract action based simply on the transaction agreement's terms. This possibility remains independent of any party's board's fiduciary duty to their shareholders. Merger agreements typically contain a fiduciary out provision for the target company in the event a superior offer is made prior to the shareholder approval of the transaction. Outside of the fiduciary out, however, my fiduciary duty made me do it is not an acceptable defense to a breach of contract action. Likewise, however, negotiated terms in a merger agreement do not absolve directors of their fiduciary obligations to their shareholders. So to the extent that a point comes where there is a perceived tension between a party's contractual and the board's fiduciary obligations, directors can end up between a rock and a hard place with plaintiff attorneys potentially beating down their doors. Complex indeed, Mark. Uh, and something for counsel and parties to keep in mind as they pursue strategic M&A transactions. Thanks again for participating, Mark. Great insight. Wonderful having you on. And with that, we want to thank you all for listening to another episode of our Beating the Competition podcast. We hope that you found it informative and that you will join us on our future episodes. Until next time, we wish you all the best as we navigate these challenging times. Thank you.